Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States. Episode 4.6, The Stamp Act. When we last left off, the British had put the American Duties Act, known as the Sugar Act, into place. The act was not popular amongst the colonists. However, that was to be expected. Nobody liked a new tax. And for British Prime Minister George Grenville, he harbored no illusions that the colonists were going to be singing his praises over a new tax, even if the tax technically wasn't new and was actually lower than it was before. Much to the likely considerable relief of Grenville, the American Duties Act was received with little in the way of worrisome protests. Not that there were not upset colonists. And sure enough, several of the colonies sent along angry remonstrances. However, most of the complaints were economic and not constitutional in their approach. Only New York and North Carolina openly denied that Parliament possessed the authority to tax the colonists directly. The rest of the colonies based their complaints on the far less inflammatory basis of economic hardships. Men like James Otis wrote lengthy polemics on the subject, which touched directly on the constitutional issues. But because of the current leadership in the colonies, these were often pushed aside in exchange for more tempered responses, focusing on those economic issues. And really, practically, the American Duties Act had a rather limited impact on the average colonist. Most of the colonists were not manufacturing rum and therefore cared little about the tax. Sure, they were probably annoyed at some of the provisions around the enforcement of the act, but again, the chances of them somehow violating the act was remote and therefore of little consequence. At the end of the day, therefore, the scene that Grenville was looking at was really as close to ideal as possible. Yes, there had been some tersely worded pamphlets, but there had not really been any protests. The colonists had not picked up their pitchforks and their torches. No customs officials were beheaded by angry rabble, nor did any mob march on a colonial governor's mansion and ransack it. Grenville knew that such a reaction was possible. He recalled the anger back in Britain itself some years earlier over the cider tax. However, what he saw out of America in response to the American Duties Act was more akin to a begrudging acceptance. This hesitant acceptance by the colonists freed Grenville to move a step further and push through a carefully worded tax on official documents. Collection of this tax would be done through issuing a specifically created royal stamp. Grenville, who had assumed that this act would be met with roughly equal amounts of resistance as the American Duties Act, saw no reason to pull back. He did not know of the firestorm that he was about to unleash. The act being proposed by Grenville and the ministry involved putting a government-issued stamp on all paper products. This ran the gamut from legal contracts, court paperwork, ship manifests, deeds, wills, bills of sale, newspapers, all the way on down to playing cards and dice. Simply put, if it was on paper it was going to require this official stamp showing that the required duty had been paid. The amount of the stamp varied, 
depending on what the person needed stamped. For example, it was cheaper to stamp a deck of cards as compared to legal forms. Don't worry about the exact amounts, however. Just know that any official paper document was going to require the official stamp. News of the Stamp Act was nothing new. The colonists had been aware that Grenville was tossing around the idea for the last year. Grenville, however, had held the act back from incorporation with the American Duties Act. There were a few practical reasons for this. First, an American Stamp Act was going to be a complicated bill. It was going to need to be tailored for the colonial situation specifically, something that was going to take time to draw up. Second, it would give Grenville the opportunity to gauge the colonists' response to the American Duties Act and to mollify concerns over a Stamp Act by meeting with colonial representatives. Grenville was encouraged by the response to the American Duties Act, which had produced little in the way of serious outrage. Grenville did indeed seek out feedback from colonial representatives, informing them that he wanted to hear their opinion on the matter. Despite these overtures, there is at least some evidence that, for Grenville, this was little more than a bit of performative theater. You see, Grenville did indeed seek opinions from American colonists. However, he made sure to clarify that he did not want to hear any implications that Parliament lacked the authority for the tax in the first place. Grenville made sure that everybody understood that should an argument drift into those questions over the prerogative of Parliament, it was not going to be entertained. Now, it is very important here to remember that we are looking at everything with a very healthy dose of hindsight. We know that the Stamp Act is going to send shockwaves through the colonies. However, Grenville in 1764, as he is requesting opinions from colonial leaders, he doesn't know what is coming. From Grenville's perspective, the colonists had, begrudgingly, accepted the American Duties Act, and he felt confident that they would receive the Stamp Act with a similar response. However, this is not to say that Grenville was completely without warning that the Stamp Act would not find a warm reception amongst the colonists. Thomas Watley, the guy actually drafting the language of the Act, had approached Jared Ingersoll Sr. from Connecticut. Ingersoll was well known as a former Connecticut representative to court during the Seven Years' War. Critically, he was a company guy to his core. He was staunchly loyal. So Grenville and company could feel pretty safe that he was not about to challenge the authority of Parliament. Ingersoll was blunt in his warnings that the American people would absolutely challenge the authority and reach of Parliament when presented with the Stamp Act. Whether or not Grenville wanted to hear it, Ingersoll was sure that the colonists would claim the act as a denial of both their natural and constitutional rights. Ingersoll likewise hinted that a far safer move would be allowing the colonies themselves to provide the desperately needed revenue. Just as a quick side note here, well, Jared Ingersoll Sr. would remain a loyalist throughout all of this. His son, Jared Ingersoll Jr., was a supporter of the American cause, is a signer of the Constitution, 
and would ultimately end up being an important early jurist. We will hear again from both Ingersoll Sr. and Jr. as we move along. Grenville, upon being presented with this rather stark warning, appears to have just gone ahead and dismissed it out of hand. In February 1765, right before the passage of the Act, a group of American agents tried desperately to talk Grenville out of it. This group included the aforementioned Ingersoll, as well as Richard Jackson, Charles Garth, and last, though certainly never least, Benjamin Franklin. Attempting to assuage the group's fears, Grenville explained that the revenue from the Stamp Act was to be used directly towards paying for the standing army that was now going to be placed in America. As Charles Townsend, somebody whom we are going to spend a lot of time with in the future, would put it, if the colonies want British protection, they must contribute to British revenue. This group attempted to sell Grenville on the idea that the Americans would be happy to pay the tax, so long as it could be self-administered internally and not through an act of parliament. Franklin had actually suggested that the better play here would have been to reverse course on the Currency Act and allow the printing of paper money and then collect a small amount of interest on it. The colonists would be happy seeing paper money return, and then most of the tax burden would have been borne by the rich, as they were the ones with the most money and hence were the ones who would find themselves responsible for most of the interest. However, despite the warnings from the colonial officials, Grenville had made his mind up. The Stamp Act was the way to go. Grenville felt pretty good with how everything was going as well. He recognized the power of the Stamp Act and was pleased with the direction everything was heading. The tax would be applied evenly across the board, without any consideration of wealth, meaning that everybody would, in theory, bear the same burden. Certain professions, such as printers and lawyers, would pay more than, say, masons, but everybody was going to have to pay something. Grenville likewise reasoned that in the future, after the colonists have had some time to adjust to the new tax, of course, it would be a simple thing to raise the rate and hence increase revenue. As is, the American Stamp Act was going to only equal two-thirds of the rate back in Britain. From Grenville's perspective, the Stamp Act killed so many birds with a single stone. The tax rate was a small enough one that it would never be some kind of crippling financial burden. It was small enough that hopefully the colonists would decide that the fight back was not worth anything more than some angry fist-shaking. Grenville was likewise banking on the fact that the colonists' begrudging acceptance of the act would have the side benefit of confirming to everybody the fact that Parliament's authority extended to passing direct taxes on the colonies. And, really, can any of us blame the Ministry for going this direction? The Empire was short on cash. The American colonies were not paying their share, and when looking at how to shore up the finances, this was an obvious place to do it. Well, every American agent, guys like Ingersoll and Franklin, strongly encouraged allowing the colonial assemblies to pass new taxes, 
that was always going to be a very hard pill to swallow. It isn't as though Grenfell did not have a good reason to distrust colonial promises of money. The Seven Years' War had shown everybody just how hard of a time it was extracting anything from the colonies. Just send a letter to Lord Loudon and ask him if he thought that the colonists could be trusted to pay their debts. Now, on top of everything else, the colonists' lack of ability to control their frontiers just reinforced the need to keep a standing army in North America. A standing army that the colonists would benefit directly from, as it would help keep their frontiers safe from continued Indian attacks. Grenville sought no reason that the colonists should not foot the bill for this. As previously stated, he even promised the colonists that the funds raised from the Stamp Act would be placed in a separate account and spent only in the colonies themselves. As of this junction, the Stamp Act, therefore, was going to save the Empire money by helping to pay for the administrative and military costs of maintaining that same empire. Despite the objections of the American agents, on February 6, 1765, Grenville presented his bill to Parliament. There was little in the way of objection to it, and very little fanfare. The members of Parliament, in fact, were rather annoyed at the American colonists for having the outright gall to question the power of Parliament. Most of them were eager to set the colonists back into their place. The only major speech giving objection to it and asserting the rights of the colonists came from Isaac Barr. Barr's speech openly called out Parliament, stating that the colonists in America were forced to flee there in the first place by despotism and tyranny from that very government. He further stated that their expansion and growth was not because of British intervention and assistance, but came because of British neglect. He denied that the colonists needed British protection again, pointing out that it was the colonists who had helped fight their war against the French. The most famous line, however, was that to spy out their liberty, to misrepresent their actions and to prey upon them, men whose behavior on many occasions has caused the blood of those sons of liberty to recoil within them. In the coming months, the British would grow very sick of hearing about the sons of liberty, as that term was about to be co-opted by groups back across the Atlantic in America. While Barr's speech momentarily stunned Parliament into silence, it failed to move the needle in any real way. When Barr motioned to adjourn without a vote, he was shot down by a demoralizing vote of 245 to 49. Parliament had no plans to back down. American agents would make a few more feeble attempts, but by this point, the debate had ended and Grenville refused to even hear their arguments. On February 27th, the Stamp Act was approved by Parliament. On March 22nd, George III added his signature. The Stamp Act was now officially the law of the land. Grenville, to further attempt to lessen the blow, had even agreed to allow the Americans to choose who the stamp collectors were going to be. 
This seemed like a good way to appeal to the Americans, who would not be forced to have foreign agents coming into the colonies for the purpose of collections. But it would be handled by people who they knew and who they trusted. For those appointed to the job of stamp collector, there was also a good amount of money baked into the plan for those who were collecting the taxes. Among those selected would be Jared Ingersoll, the same guy who had just some months before cautioned Parliament about the dangerous waters that they were wading into. Though it was a pretty sweet gig on the surface, as we are going to see, there is going to be a lot of regrets for those who accepted roles as stamp collectors. Well, Grenville may have guessed that there would be some complaints, an angry pamphlet or two, and some general fist-shaking. He likely believed that the response would be a mirror of what followed the American Duties Act. In a short amount of time, he would discover just how wrong he was. It takes a little bit of time before we begin to really see much in the way of responses coming out of the colonies. This follows, as it was always going to take time for the official proclamation to make its way across the Atlantic. Once there, it was going to take even more time to propagate throughout the colonies. And then even once it did, everybody was going to need to take a minute to figure out exactly what their next move was going to be. The first real sign of activity in the colonies came on May 11th, 1765, in the Providence Gazette. On that day, the paper published a piece entitled Letters from a Plain Yeoman. The letters, published anonymously, attacked the new Stamp Act with the author, writing about the illegal nature of the taxation, as it violated the colonists' rights as British subjects. The author further attacked Grenville for not even allowing the colonists to mount a response, stating that his orders not to complain about the constitutional issues denied the colonists the liberty of even complaining. It also showed that there is no dependence of the colonies on Great Britain, nor Great Britain on the colonies, because they were all subjects of the same king. From there, it continued with comparisons to Roman history because, as we are going to see, the colonists really loved their Roman history. And then finally, the piece wraps up by decrying their lack of representation. The letter from the plain yeoman did not change much, nor did it add in a profound way to the already existing arguments. Rather, the importance of the letter is that it stands as an early outcry towards the Stamp Act. There is going to be a lot more down the road, much more vitriolic responses. However, the letter from the Plain Yeoman gives us some sense of what the initial responses were. Politically, the first colony to respond to the Stamp Act was Virginia. For Virginia, when the Stamp Act reached them, it was already late in the legislative session. Only 39 of the 116 Burgesses remained, as many of them had already called it a day and had gone home. Among these Burgesses, however, who had not gone home was a young 29-year-old named Patrick Henry. Henry had risen to prominence as a lawyer through a series of cases where he represented Virginia against the local clergy. After showing off his impressive oratory skills during these cases, 
Henry found himself elected as a Burgess, arriving for his first session on May 20th. Despite his status as literally having just walked in the door for the first time, by the end of the month, Henry found himself leading the charge against the Stamp Act. On May 29, 1765, Patrick Henry introduced the Virginia Resolves. The Resolves were as follows, and to be clear, I am paraphrasing here. 1. The first people to come across the Atlantic, back in 1607, brought with them all the rights that they had enjoyed as subjects of the English crown. 2. Both of the charters issued to the colonies, and recall the first charter was replaced in 1624, following the massacre by Opeshenkino, confirmed that the colonists had the same rights as those born in England. 3. That taxation can only be consented to by the people, or the people's representatives. This right being a distinguishing characteristic of British freedom, and a core constitutional right. 4. At no point have the colonists given up their rights as subjects, something that has been recognized by all kings and governments. 5. And now I'm quoting directly. Therefore, that the General Assembly of this colony have the only and sole exclusive right and power to lay taxes and impositions upon the inhabitants of this colony, and that every attempt to vest such power in any person or persons whatsoever, other than the General Assembly aforesaid, has a manifest tendency to destroy British as well as American freedom. Of these resolutions, really, the first four came with very little controversy. They were in fact very similar to what had passed a year before in response to the American Duties Act, and was not something that really anybody was going to object to. The catching point, however, came on that fifth point. More than just some angry grumbling, this was a blunt accusation leveled towards Parliament that their actions were endangering the freedoms of all the people of the empire. What followed next was a impassioned and contentious debate. The next day, Henry did not mince words when he spoke in defense of his proposed resolves. Henry stated that in former times, Tarquin and Julius had their Brutus, Charles had his Cromwell, and he did not doubt but some good Americans would stand up in favor of his country. This was a very incendiary speech to be spoken on the floor of the House of Burgesses, something that the Speaker of the House, John Robinson, was quick to notice. Robinson, shocked by what he was hearing, quickly informed Henry that what he was saying was treasonous. Henry, probably intelligently, backed off, claiming that his emotions had gotten the better of him. Regardless of Henry's slightly treasonous speech, the younger Burgesses were taken up with the 29-year-old firebrand. With so many of the members of the House of Burgesses having started their summer break early, the younger contingent of the House carried the day. All five resolutions passed. This would mark an important turning point in Virginia politics, as suddenly, a younger and more radical group of Burgesses were making their voices heard, 
over the more conservative older generation of Burgesses. It would be the beginning of a changing of the guard that is going to help dictate much of the political story of Virginia in the decade to come. It is worth noting that standing in the wings, watching Henry's arguments for the Virginia Resolves, was a 22-year-old law student named Thomas Jefferson. Henry, feeling pretty good about himself, packed up the next day, May 31st, and headed off for home. Lieutenant Governor Francis Fauquier was undoubtedly concerned about what he was hearing. However, rather than becoming concerned that there was a growing radicalism problem in the colony, Fauquier instead chided the Burgesses who had all taken off before the end of the session, which had opened the door for somebody like Patrick Henry to waltz in and pass his resolves. No need to worry, though. Fauquier simply failed to adjourn the House of Burgesses. After Patrick Henry and the younger contingent left, the handful of remaining conservative members reconsidered the resolves. They kept the first four and ditched the fifth. With the fifth resolve struck, Fakir promptly adjourned the House. No harm, no foul. Right? Well, as it turned out, that was not quite the case. Sure, Virginia had technically cleaned up this little blip of radicalism. However, colonial newspapers did not report it that way. Rather, they published various versions of the resolves, including the now stricken Fifth Resolve, and in some cases, adding even more radical resolves to the list. Both the Newport Mercury and the Maryland Gazette reported on the Virginia resolutions during the early summer. Both papers published not just the four approved resolutions, but included the fifth resolution, plus a bonus resolution that anybody or any group attempting to levy such taxes on the colonists who were not members of that colony's assembly should be regarded as enemies to the colony. If you are curious about where these reports came from, nobody knows. However, once they were made, they were repeated throughout the colonies. It helped to paint a picture of what had gone on in Virginia, regardless of its accuracy. What the Virginia resolves and the subsequent press resulted in is that it broke up the malaise that had settled over the colonies in response to the Stamp Act. As angry as people were, the initial response was surprisingly mild. We can blame some of this on the speed of transatlantic travel and the speed that it took the specifics of the Stamp Act to spread around. But even then, we really see very little in the way of a response by any of the other colonies until after the news of the Virginia Resolves began to spread. If everybody had been sitting around trying to figure out what their response was going to be and waiting to see who would move first, Patrick Henry had just shoved everybody off the fence and into action. The problem, however, is that the action we are going to see resulting from this will not come immediately from colonial assemblies. Most of the colonies had already adjourned their assemblies. Indeed, we know Virginia was very close to doing the same when Patrick Henry strolled in and presented his resolutions. 
as we are going to see next time. The response over the summer of 1765 will not come from the colonial assemblies in harshly worded declarations. Instead, the response is going to come as a mob action. There was a lot of anger simmering just under the surface and, in short order, it was going to explode outward in the biggest display of colonial resistance since 1689. That is all for next time, however. We are not quite finished for today. Well, the Stamp Act is going to be getting all the attention, I want to take the rest of our time today to introduce the Quartering Act. Well, I understand that this is probably not the most graceful of segues. This is something that is going on at roughly the same time as the Stamp Act, and I want to make sure that we know what it is. We have discussed the problems associated with what to do with troops before. Back in episode 3.31, we had considered the problem of finding a place for the troops to stay. The solution during the French and Indian War was to build barracks to house the troops, while touting the Mutiny Act of 1689 as forbidding the practice of putting them into private homes. In the American Mutiny Act, passed in 1765, shortly after the Stamp Act, Parliament passed a law that laid out their expectations for the colonists, providing quarter to British troops. What Thomas Gage was seeking was a plan that would see American colonists, included under the Mutiny Act. Gage believed that this would extend the Americans both rights and responsibilities that were owed, and subsequently due to all British citizens. Among the American agents who supported this plan was Benjamin Franklin, who agreed that such a scheme would promote the idea of a single, unitary empire. After all, is that not the exact thing that the colonists were arguing? That there was but one British empire and that the American colonists were every bit as much a member of it as the citizens living in London itself? Passed on May 25, 1765, the Quartering Act gave the British Army a wide range of new ability to support itself. From seizing wagons at a predetermined rate, to half-price ferry crossings, and dictating that it would be the responsibility of the colonists to provide food to the troops, the new Quartering Act laid out a myriad of new responsibilities on the colonists. To be sure, what Parliament was asking here of the colonists was nothing more than would have been expected back at home. Critically, the Quartering Act, much to the considerable annoyance of Thomas Gage, did not allow the British to house soldiers in private homes, something which he had been strongly urging. Rather, it provided that troops would instead be kept in public houses. Recall that public houses are essentially anywhere that serves alcohol, so pubs, taverns, as well as inns. The Quartering Act, however, just really came at the wrong time. Franklin, for instance, was pleased with the final product and did not believe that there was going to be any problem with it. Maybe had it come at another time, the reception would have been different. However, it came at that precise moment when the colonists were up in a tizzy about taxes being passed on them without their representation. This is ultimately what they saw the Quartering Act as being, 
Sure, it was not as direct as the Stamp Act, but the colonists were still looking at a new law that was passed by a distant body that they had no representation in. Though it may sound simple, the colonists were still taking on an additional financial load associated with the care of the army. In their eyes, this was just as much a tax as anything else. And once again, the colonial assemblies had no role in it. The response of the colonists to the Quartering Act is going to be largely swallowed up by the uproar over the Stamp Act. We will, however, return to the Quartering Act here soon. As we are going to see, the colonists in New York certainly would not be forgetting about the Quartering Act, even during the coming events surrounding the Stamp Act. Next time, we are going to see tensions boil over regarding the Stamp Act. Well, it would not be until the fall that we see some of the other colonies passing their own Virginia-style resolutions. The summer of 1765 would become defined by mob action. Until then, I hope you all have a fantastic two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and that you are staying safe. And I will see you back here next time when we will discuss the Stamp Act Riots. <laughs> <laughs>